God, that we will see you face to face and that we will be in your presence, that all the generations that have come before us, all the generations that come after us, God, they, we will be all together worshiping you in your presence, in the beauty and the splendor of your holiness and magnificence. But God, I'm so thankful that we do not have to wait until that day to experience a taste of that. God, we are here today to experience a taste of you, a taste of what you offer us in Jesus. We thank you for being present with your people as we gather to worship you in this place today. Lord, would you be pleased with our offering of praise? We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray, amen. Amen, why don't you go ahead and have a seat. Uh, good morning, my name is Chris, um, and just let me add my voice of welcome to you this morning. Um, usually I have the privilege of <clears throat> leading our worship and production team here at Christchurch, except for today, um, which I am incredibly thankful for. I don't know um, if you guys know this, but uh, I think my wife and I in first service, we were sitting down here in the front row, and it was, I think, the first time that we've actually, since our first Sunday on staff here, that we've been able to actually stand together and worship side by side in this church together, um, which has been a blessing to me. So our, our servant leaders, all of our, our worship and production team led us in worship today. So thankful for them. And uh, it's a privilege for me week in, week, week in and week out to be able to stand up here alongside of them and to, to lead our church in worship. And um, they do such a great job and I'm so blessed to be in that role here. But today, um, I have the exciting opportunity and the exciting privilege to be opening up God's word. And so um, if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open it up to Genesis chapter 11. I'll meet you there in a second. But today's also exciting because we are starting a brand new series here at Christ Church. And that series is called Stories You Thought You Knew. And so this is an exciting series that we've been looking forward to. It's going to carry out through the summer where we're going to be taking um, a, a closer look at some Old Testament stories that might be familiar from uh, Bible school or from VBS or from Veggie Tales, whatever it is. And we're going to look at them from a, in a new perspective and in a new light and try to, to bring them into the whole council of, of Scripture, all of God's Word, and to see how these stories might have a bigger uh, role than what we might first look at on the surface of them. And so... Um, let me just start by asking this question. Have you ever been taught something before that was incorrect that you found out later was incorrect? Raise your hand if that's you. Okay, great. Many people have been in the room that have uh, had that happen to them and that's encouraging to me. Um, I've grown up in West Michigan pretty much my whole life and um, here in West Michigan, we say that we have two seasons, right? It's winter and road construction. Thank you, see? <clears throat> it's proper language around here, winter and road construction. And so every spring or summer, we start to see the, the orange barrels pop up and the signs and that the constru road construction is about to begin. And every year, there's always a section of, uh, of a lane of a highway that needs to be worked on. And so there's a, a sign that says, you know, lane ending soon, um, merge right, and uh, it might be ending two miles down the road. But what does everybody do at that point? Get in line, right? Well, I'm here to tell you today that that is wrong, right? So like that is, not in, that is incorrect, right? I'm sponsored by MDOT today to, 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 to bring to our awareness a, a rule that you thought you knew was that we are supposed to zipper merge, right? So there's a, there's a whole lane of highway that is supposed to be used by cars and we're not supposed to be policing each other by like hovering over the middle to make sure people can't go past, right? Every person who's lived in any other state in the country will tell you that what we do here is crazy because we're the only people that do that. And so, so, that's a rule that you thought you knew. 
It's an illustration to talk about what we're trying to do with this series, right? So we are here to take a look at some of the pictures and the stories through God's word and, and re-examine them, bring truth to them, maybe correct some things that are incorrect that have been taught over the course of our lives and bring them into the light of the entirety of God's word and to see in that the beautiful, majestic sovereignty of God in the story that he wrote in his word, but is also continuing to write in our lives today. Because this, friends, this is not just a book of stories. This is an incredibly relevant and helpful guide for us to walk through what we are experiencing today here in 2022. So with all that being said, we are gonna be starting in the Old Testament. This whole series is all through the Old Testament. So we're gonna start as close to the beginning as we can um, with our story today, Genesis chapter 11. This is the story of the Tower of Babel. And a key part of this story are actually the events leading up to it. So just allow me to kind of bring us up to speed, give us a quick review and overview of what's happened to this point, and then we'll jump into our text for today. So Genesis 1 and 2 uh, is the story of creation, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and everything that we have come to see and know and love uh, and experience here on earth, God created that. And then uh, ultimately, he created man in his image on the sixth day, and he gives them a mission. In, in Genesis 1.28, you'll see this up on the screen, God says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now that's called the creation mandate, and and really it's an awesome privilege and it's not really a, a, a rule. Like if you think about it, I heard one pastor say this week, it's like God's telling his people, be fruitful, wink, wink, and travel. Like what other two things could we wanna do, right? Like he's saying, just go ahead and do that. And what could possibly go wrong? Well, just turn the page in Genesis chapter three, you'll see everything starts to go wrong, right? Genesis three through six, um, sin enters the world, corruption uh, increases throughout the generations, ultimately leading up to Genesis six through nine, which is the story of Noah and the flood, where God brings judgment for sin and, and wipes out mankind and restarts his creation anew with Noah and his family in, uh, in Genesis chapter nine. And so, what happens at the end of, of that flood is that God gives Noah and his family the opportunity to start fresh with the same command. He says to them in uh, Genesis 9:1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And just in case they missed the message, just a few verses later, he says, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So three times in the first nine chapters of the Bible, God has told his people to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth. That's going to be incredibly important for our story today, so follow that away, and we'll come back to that in just a second. And so uh, Genesis chapter 10, then, is just a a genealogy of Noah and his family, and uh, our text today, Genesis chapter 11, actually sits chronologically kind of in the beginning of chapter 10, and that is the story of the Tower of Babel. And so Uh, Many scholars, this is an interesting piece of information, that many scholars believe that Noah's great-grandson, Nimrod, which is like an incredible name. Anybody, any Nimrods in the room? No? Okay. Uh, His great-grandson, Nimrod, was responsible for organizing and building the Tower of Babel. So if it's his great-grandson and Noah lived several hundred years after the flood, it's very likely that Noah and his sons, who had been given the creation mandate, were present at the building of the Tower of Babel. So with all of that in mind, let's jump into our text today. If you've got your Bible in front of you, Genesis chapter 11, verses one through nine. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. 
And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and let, let us burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed all over the face of the earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower with which the children of man had built. And the Lord said to them, behold, they are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So come, let us go down. There's a little bit of uh, sarcasm, I think, in that that phrase. Let us go down there, uh, confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, Its name was called Babel or confusion because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So interesting. Uh, what, what, what could possibly be here for us in this passage today? Um, instead of maybe just looking at this story as like the proof text or the origin story for, for languages spreading and cultures and people groups forming, uh, what, is the, what does God have in store for us to pull from this text today? Let's take a closer look uh, as we do that. Our big idea that we're going to see through this text is this. It's a simple statement. God's people gathered is the ultimate end game. Now that might seem a little bit counterintuitive to what we just read as God is dispersing people, but that's why we're calling this series The Stories You Thought You Knew, right? Because we're gonna unpack that a bit more. And so here's the thing, we haven't yet reached the ultimate end game, right? And I hope that as we look at this story through the lens of the entire word of God, um, and we're gonna be jumping over to the New Testament here in a bit, we're gonna see three very important lessons for us today because we have not yet reached the end. So three lessons to learn because we're not there at the ultimate end yet. And the first one comes right out of this text. Lesson one, don't gather for the wrong reasons. So let's take a closer look at what is happening here in this story. So God has told his people three times to fill the earth, to multiply, be fruitful, and to fill the earth. And it sounds like they started to. Uh, verse two says that they migrated east and, uh, and settled into the, the plains of Shinar. So basically what's happening is they're like, okay, God, we'll do that. And they started moving and then they're like, we actually really like it right here. This, is, this plain is really nice. We're gonna settle in. And they start to build a tower. And so I was wondering like, why, like, why would you build a, like, a tower? Like let's, let's settle and build a tower. And um, does anybody in here have any sons? or any, any boys, like, what is one thing that they love to do when they're younger? They just love to build towers, right? So uh, humans, as we are created all in God's image, you and I, God is a creator, God is a builder, so he made us to be creators and builders, and so that's something that we're just naturally drawn to. Uh, my son, Brooks, this week heard that I was going to be teaching on the Tower of Babel, and he doesn't know what the Tower of Babel is, but it gave him an idea to just go into uh, our little mudroom, and he built his own, he said, Dad, look, I built the Tower of Babel. And I was like, that's probably about as high as they got before God had to come down. Um, But he was so proud of himself and he just like that. There's something in us that we uh, are wired to build things. But if we look closer at verse four in this passage, um, the, the author gives us the reasons why they chose to build a tower. So take a look at verse four in your Bibles with me. They said, 
Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So, do you see the two reasons in that text? They're two very clear reasons of why they chose to build a tower. And um, I'm going to confess that I am an English major, and so I love language. And so I'll just indulge me a moment here. We're going to dive into the, the actual sentence structure of this statement to see what are the two reasons why that they um, chose to build the tower. So first, check this out on the screen. First, the action was that they built, they wanted to build a city. And the reason they wanted to build a city, it's at the end of the verse, is in order to not be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So they wanted to, to avoid being spread out into the earth. They're looking for security. There's a lot of uh, unknowns in the ends of the earth that haven't been explored yet. And so they wanted to be secure and settle and build a city. This is a direct rebellion to the creation mandates that God had given them to go and to fill the earth. They're disobeying him and they're settling. Secondly, they build a tower with its top in the heavens. That's what they do. And it says right there in the text, why? In order to make a name for themselves. So what they're desiring here is to feel significant. They want, to, they want the praise of man. They want to make a name for themselves. They're looking a way to fuel their pride. So, but here's the key problem with this statement and these two desires that we see here is that those two things, security and significance, are what God had given creation in the garden and man had rejected them. So think about this for a second. God had given them security. He had given them himself. He had given Adam and Eve uh, the comfort and the peace of being in his presence and the safety and security of, of being in a, in a garden where death did not exist. He also had given them significance. He had given them purpose. He they were made in his image. They were to be uh, working in the garden and, and living out the commands that he had asked them to do. <clears throat> as his image bearers. But they rejected that. Adam and Eve and, and mankind rejected that and said, no, we're going to do it our way. And we're going to try to seek significance and security in the ways that we see is the best. And what's happening here is that the people in this text are choosing to seek out significance and security through the building of a tower. Why? Because they're just trying to gain something back that they had lost in God. And really, if you read your way through the rest of the Bible, all throughout scripture, you're gonna see that pattern over and over again. Man, trying to fill this hole of security and significance by doing things their own way to try to gain back what they have lost in the beginning of what God had given them. And, and I think, honestly, if you and I are to put ourselves into the story, I don't think we're any different. I think that we are hungry for security. We are desperate for significance and we choose to seek those things out in our own ways here on earth in our lives. We want a city. We want a place to belong. So we'll, we'll join a sports team. We'll join a community group. We'll, we'll find a club to belong to. We'll, we'll hang out with our friends in our neighborhood. We want to have that sense of a belonging. We want to feel secure. And so we, we want guaranteed safety. We avoid risk. I, I read this week that, um, that in 2020, Americans alone spent $1.28 trillion on insurance premiums. Now, like insurance is a good thing, right? Like it's good to, it's good to have that, to have a safety net in, ca in case things go wrong. But $1.8 trillion spent by Americans to make sure that we're feeling secure. It's an evidence that this is a value that we hold on to tightly in our culture. 
We also want to feel significant, and so we'll pour ourselves into our careers. Like, I, I want to rise up and, and get the next promotion, the next step on the ladder, whatever it is. I want to feel affirmed. I want to feel validated in what I do. I want people to see that. I want them to, to know what I'm doing and to applaud that. Um, we do this on social media all the time. I, I was just uh, seeing this week uh, on Tuesday was uh, apparently, I did not know this, but a Tuesday was National Selfie Day. That's where we are. Th that is where we are as a country, that we have an entire national holiday dedicated to taking pictures of ourselves so that we can post it on the internet and have people give us likes and comments and tell us how good we look, right? We, we crave that. We crave the, the significance that comes from affirmation and people seeing us and affirming that. But here's, here's the thing is that God's desire for us is that we wouldn't be looking for our security in a city or in a state or in a nation or a leader or a relationship or a people group or any of that. He wants us to find our sense of security in himself and in what he has to offer us. His desire for us is that we wouldn't be finding our significance in, in the lifting up of ourselves or the praising of ourselves, but in the lifting up of his name and praising his name, that our significance and purpose comes from living out our calling and our purpose in our worship and our communion with him. <clears throat> and while you and I might not actually be like building these physical towers of significance and security in our lives, I think in our hearts we're building these monuments of ways that we are laying down and worshiping at the altar of significance and security day after day. They consume our thoughts, they consume our actions, the things that we pursue after is all to fill that hole that we lost, that we lost in, in relationship with God. So can we take this a step further for us as a church? So if this, if this story is about God's people gathered together and judgment comes because of the way that they were gathering incorrectly, certainly as a gathered church, there has to be a takeaway for something for us corporately together as well, right? So <clears throat> let me just introduce you to a hypothetical uh, person. We'll call him Christchurch Chris with a C-H, not a K, because that would, it's not me, uh, but Christchurch Chris with a C-H, uh, hypothetical, hypothetical person. Christchurch Chris loves Christchurch. He's here every week. He loves being a part of this body. Uh, he's not just in a community group, he's in two community groups, and he attends them faithfully every week. Uh, Christchurch Chris doesn't just serve weekly in kids' ministry. In the 9 a.m., he's in kids' ministry. In the 11 a.m., he's, he's an ushering. Like, he's, he's pouring himself out and serving in every way possible to be used by God in this body. Um, Christ Church, uh, Chris, d isn't just tithing 10% of his net paycheck. He's tithing 10% off the pre-tax gross paycheck, so he's extra faithful and wants God to get the best. So he's, you know, he's trying to give the most generous gift that he can because he loves this church. Um, Christ Church, Chris owns every bit of Christchurch swag that has ever been produced. So he's wearing the shirts, he's got the hats, he's got the bags, he's got the decal on his car, he's, he's doing it all. He shares every Facebook post, every Instagram post, he's liking on it, commenting it, he's, he's, he loves engaging with us on social media, he attends every fresh encounter, he attends every prayer meeting, he attends every servant leader celebration, he attends every training event, he's here for everything. He even comes to student ministries on Sunday nights and prays for the students out in the lobby because he just wants God's presence to be known there. He, he loves being here and, and gathering at Christ Church. I mean, Christchurch Chris sounds like a pretty great guy, doesn't he? Like, he sounds pretty awesome. I'd want to get to know that guy. I mean, these are all really good things that he's doing. Uh, Christchurch Chris loves to build the tower of Christchurch. 
but Christ Church Chris hasn't started to fill the earth. He, he loves the uniformity, the safety, the security that comes from gathering in, in this place with people that look like him and speak like him and think like him and worship like him where it's secure and comfortable. He loves the purpose and the significance that he gets from serving people that are like him um, and, and loves pouring himself out in that way, but he balks at any opportunity to serve the less fortunate in his community. He hesitates to reach out and serve the people who might need it, who, would, who are different than him because it's a little bit uncomfortable. He loves uh, being a part of his community groups and he loves attending those two community, two community groups, but those, both of those groups have not added a single person to their group in the last two years because that takes work to build relationships and to be able to get vulnerable with somebody to share things that are going on in your life. And we would just rather kind of keep this tight and because this is, this is comfortable for us. He's faithfully and generously giving to the church week after week, but he's very stingy with his money and resources whenever needs are presented to him in other areas of life, like his neighbors who live on his street who might have a need. He's slow to extend the generosity to them. He's way more focused on making Christ's church famous to everyone, everywhere, every day than he is making Christ famous to everyone, everywhere, every day because making Christ church famous is significantly lower risk than living out the name of Jesus Christ in our community. It's less offensive. You know, I think if, um, if we're honest with ourselves, and if I'm honest with myself, and I read through that list, maybe that Christ church Chris does need to have a K next to it, because I find myself in a lot of those places as well, wrestling through those things, especially as somebody who's in leadership and on staff here at this church. I feel the tension of that because those are all really good things. They're all really good things that we're called to do and we're all called to, to pursue after them, to build up this church. That's what God's wanting us to do, to build up the body and to belong and to, and to be connected to this. But here's the thing. If the end goal is to build up Christ's church, we're missing the point. Christ's church, building up Christ's church is a means to the end goal which is expanding, expanding God's kingdom into our community, into our city, into our world, and beyond that. So we have to see that, like, what's happening in this passage and, and, and what is happening in our gatherings at times is that we are so quick to, uh, to say, like, I'm all about building up this body and missing the opportunity to, to have this be an end, a means to an end to reach the needs of the world around us. God's people gathered is the ultimate end game, but we're not there yet. And so we have to stop gathering for the wrong reasons. Now I could end the message right there. Um, there's plenty enough <laughs> for us to chew on right there and to wrestle with this week. Uh, but this story is called, or this, this series is called Stories You Thought You Knew. And so there's a whole part of this story that we haven't even touched on yet that I'm really excited to, to bring to you. So you guys ready to hear that? Take the next step deeper into this story. The fun part of this story, so check this out. So the sin of man never surprises God. Your sin does not surprise God. My sin does not surprise God. He's never caught off guard by that. And so when God allowed the sins of the people here at the Tower of Babel to happen, he did it for a reason. And that reason is interwoven into a much bigger, more beautiful story that we see unfold throughout scripture and even here today. So in this particular story, God's judgment for the sins of security, of seeking of security and significance, God's judgment for that was to disperse people 
into a variety of ways through having languages and people groups and cultures form in that way. And that judgment was not an afterthought. It wasn't like, oh man, they did this and now I've got to come up with something and scatter them. No, like that was actually sovereignly ordained as a part of his plan to maximize the global glory and the impact and the reach of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that here in just a second by jumping over to the New Testament. So please keep your Bibles open to Genesis 11 and follow along with me on the screen as I read this from Acts chapter 2. We're going to come back to Genesis in a second. But um, if you were with us last year, you remember we went through the book of Acts, and this might be a familiar story to you, but I want us to, to read through this story of Pentecost with the lens of Babel right in front of us as we read this, okay? So check this out. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, Jesus' disciples, they were all gathered together in one place. So check it out. God's people gathered together in one place again. And suddenly... There came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So check this out. God's people who all spoke the language, the same language, were gathered together and now all of a sudden they're speaking what sounds like different languages. Sound familiar? Because it's a mirror image of what we just read about, right? Let's keep going. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So all of the nations that had been scattered, all of them had come back. And uh, these Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, all the nations that had been scattered, and at the sound of the multitude coming together, they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So from there, then Peter would stand up and he would preach the message of the gospel to all of these people who have been gathered because of this miracle. And empowered by the Spirit, those people would then travel back to their homelands, strapped with the message of the gospel, ready to bring that to their communities and to see the gospel expand beyond Jerusalem and into their homelands and beyond that. It's a pretty incredible picture of what's happening here. So don't miss it. It's in a way the reverse of Babel, right? So in Babel, God confused the languages of man to divide them and to prevent them from uniformly uniting against him. And at Pentecost, he brings together the languages of men and gives them something that would unify them and empower them to take that message back to advance his purposes and his plans in a beautiful way. And so the next lesson that we can learn from Babel through the eye and through the lens of Pentecost is this. God gathers his people to scatter them. God gathers his people to scatter them. There's a really uh, key verse in Genesis chapter 11 that I want to come back to as we compare these two stories together. So if you've got your Bibles open to Genesis 11, let's go back to verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So God created man in his image. He created you and me in his image. And what that means is that 
we have been given an incredible amount of collective potential as a people. I tried to think about a way uh, to, to, to illustrate this collective potential and the thing that came back to me, I've been um, building a fence around uh, our pool and, and that made me think about having a pool as a kid. And um, we had a above ground circular pool growing up and one of our favorite things to do as kids was to get in the pool and grab noodles and kickboards and whatever we could find and start walking in a circle around the pool to make this whirlpool and, and we would start going faster and faster and the current would go faster and faster and it, eventually we could get that thing moving so quickly that we could just pick up our feet and the current would carry us in a big circle around the pool and it was like the most fun thing to do as a kid like we loved it right and so that's kind of a picture of what's happening uh, that when we talk about collective potential that that whirlpool is only going to spin if everybody's working together in the same direction if we didn't work together or if somebody decided to stand in the way or try to work against it, that, that current's not going to flow in that direction. And so in Genesis, what's happening is God saw the evil in the heart of man. He saw them starting to work together in this circle to unite against him, to build this tower that would be in direct opposition to his plan and purposes for them. And he says, I got to put an end to that. And he stops it by diversifying the languages in, uh, of the people. So really, in a way, if we think about it, the diversity of languages actually isn't a hindrance to the spread of the gospel. It helps us spread the gospel because God knows that the evil in our hearts, if we all could speak the same way, that we're just going to unite and run the other direction. So he wants to expand his kingdom and he knows that the most effective way to do that is to diversify the way that people speak so that they can't unite against him and allow the gospel to spread that way. And we know that this was an effective strategy because we see what happens in Acts as people spread. And then you and I are sitting here in this room on a completely different continent, thousands of years later, holding on to the same message of the gospel and, and ready to be kingdom builders in this specific area because that message has preserved and sustained, sustained throughout time because of this. It's a beautiful picture, right? So like the, just, just like the disciples were gathered together in, uh, in that story, ultimately to be scattered back into their communities and their homelands, we as a church family gather together week after week to be filled up and encouraged and empowered with the message to take that and scatter back into our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our communities, whatever that is. And we do it on mission. Just like the disciples and the people who gathered in Jerusalem scattered on mission, we scatter on mission too. And so what is that mission? It's written on the wall in the hallway out there. Uh, but our hope and our, our desire here at this church is that it wouldn't just be something that stays on the wall, but that same mission gets, gets etched into each of our hearts as our individual missions over our lives. And so check this out. It's up on the screen. This is our mission. We exist to glorify God by loving God loving others and making disciples of what? Of all nations. And so just because this is our church's mission statement doesn't mean that this mission is contained within the walls of this building and we're trying to just do this here. It happens best with the collective potential of every person in this room working together to expand it beyond that. We scatter and we live this out. And if we want to be a church that extends this all the way to making disciples of all nations, it's gonna require every single person walking in step with us in that collective potential to do what God has called us to do. It's the only way that we will effectively live out our mission, each person doing their part. And so let me, let's just make this personal for us today. How, how are you specifically scattering? 
as we think back to that whirlpool um, of our collective potential as a church, you know, um, are you doing your part? Are you, are you helping to walk in the same direction and push with us to create that current of God's mission moving and, and expanding? Or have you just gathered to just kind of plop your tube in and ride in the wake of the hard work of other people around you? Um, I love going to uh, water parks. One of my favorite rides uh, at a water park, my favorite things to do is to find, like, if they've got a lazy river, I'm in. Like, I love, I love going to the lazy river, right? It's like the ultimate dad ride. You just, like, go in and plop the tube in, sit there, relax, and just let the cool water, like, cool, like it's, it's the way to go, right? <clears throat> but here's the thing, like, that, it, it can be easy to come to a church like this, that's a bigger church, and maybe uh, see the things that are in motion, and to be like, man, there, things are going pretty well here. I'm just going to plop my tube in, and I'm just going to sit and relax and just kind of ride the current and ride the wave of what's happening around me. And man, I'm a part of this thing that's moving when really there's nothing that's actually, that you're actually doing to help with that because every current needs to have some form of a propeller, right? And at this church, our propeller of the current of the mission that we're going after are people who have been empowered by the Spirit of God and who have been lit up with a mission in their heart and who are fired up about expanding that mission and stepping up and actually doing something about it and pushing that mission out of the walls of this church and into our communities, into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces, wherever it may be, to expand and be kingdom builders everywhere that we have the opportunity to influence. That's the propeller of this current. So my question for you is, are these gatherings, these weekly gatherings as a church, are they, are they fueling your scattering? Or is this the end game for you? Let me ask that a, a different way. Um, do you see any of the church activities, community groups or Sunday morning services or whatever it is, do you see these things as like the locker room pep talks before you take the playing field of going to work going to the gym, going to a coffee shop, having a, having a play date with your kids and, and a friend? Like, do you see this as the pep talk before the mission field? Or do you see this as the playing field? Are you just coming here to, to participate and feel like I've done my part because I'm building the tower of Christ Church? The gathering of God's people is the ultimate end game. Yes, but we're not there yet. So we have to gather to scatter. And we don't gather for the wrong reasons. We don't gather for significance or for security, but we gather to scatter with a mission and a message. And so those are the first two lessons from Babel. We don't gather for the wrong reasons. We gather to scatter. But if the gathering of God's people is the ultimate end game, then what does that actually look like? And that leads us to our third lesson today. Look forward to our eternal gathering look forward to our eternal gathering. So let's take a brief glance over at Revelation as we kind of land the plane here this morning and we see a, a picture, uh, John paints a picture for us of what eternity is going to look like. So check this out on the screen, Revelation 5, 9 and 10. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them, what? a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Revelation 7, just a couple chapters later. And after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and what? 
languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The glory that God receives in eternity has been multiplied and magnified by the voices of many different languages coming together to offer that up to him in its be- this beautiful picture. So did you see that? Eternity is not gonna be made up of just people that look like you and me. Eternity is not gonna be made up of people that speak our language or sound like us. And just a reminder for us, it was, it was the consequence of the sin of Babel that set in motion the events that would lead to God's word being spread out at Pentecost and ultimately the multiple thousands of languages gathering around his throne to worship him together. Check this out. One more from Revelation. Instead of us having to now build a tower to God, he's going to bring his kingdom down to us. Look at this. And I saw the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, much different than the way he came down in Genesis prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and the God himself will be with them as their God. So everything that was lost in the garden is going to be restored and returned to us on that final gathering. No longer will we have to make our way back to God. He's going to bring the kingdom down to us. We will have eternal security in his presence. We won't have any need or desire to make ourselves significant when we are in the presence of the supremely significant one. All of the languages and the tribes and the, and the, the cultures and people groups no longer scattered but gathered back together again to worship God for eternity in his presence. I have this, uh, this prism here and I have this flashlight and um, God's glory is, has often been described as, as a visible, like a shining light. And so this is like the worst possible way to substitute for God's glory, but it's gonna work for this illustration, okay? And so I wanna read you this quote um, that I read this week to help kind of summarize and, and help us see this picture more, more clearly. So check this out, follow along on the screen. This is from John Piper. He said, if there was no diversity of languages, if the spectacular sin of Babel had not happened with its judgment, the global glory of the gospel of Christ would not shine as beautifully as it does, look up here now, in the prism of a thousand languages. It's beautiful. Like the light of God's glory is beautiful enough, but when you, have the prism of all of the different languages reflecting the beauty and the glory of who he is, reflecting it back to him. It's a beautiful picture of what that day will look like. And just remember, without a sin on the plains of Shinar, this doesn't happen. We see the steps of this begin to play out in Pentecost, but we see it in full in Revelation on the day that we will be gathering around the throne to see all of those languages reunited together to bring glory back to the God that who is deserving of it. I don't know about you, but I, I can't wait to hear what that sounds like, right? 
thousands of languages gathering together to shout and to sing a praise to God that is just going to sound incredible. It's going to sound, um, I, I just don't even have an ability to grasp what that beautiful sound will be. But the other part that I'm just blown away by is God's sovereignty in this whole thing, right? That he <laughs> took the sin of man in, in the beginning of time pretty much and was able to set in motion of a bunch of events that would ultimately culminate in the magnification of his glory in a way that is so much beautiful, more beautiful and great than we could even understand or imagine. And so as we close this morning, um, if this story of the Tower of Babel was just about God's judgment for sin, if it was just about like giving us a proof text or an origin story for the different languages, then we would have a applicable message that would be really good for us to help assess our heart's pride and rebellion and come back to him. And that would be a really great, sufficient way to engage with this text, right? But if this story is not what we thought we knew, if this story is so much bigger, and if this story is, is giving us, it's meant to give us a picture of the beautiful nature of God's sovereign plan and the way that he uses everything, even sin, to work together something that, it, that in the end will be more beautiful and wonderful and majestic than we could ever understand. And he is inviting us to take part with him, to partner with him in the advancement of his mission to our people, to our community, to our families, to our neighborhoods, to our workplaces, because of all of that, then I think we've got some pretty compelling reasons to respond today. So church family, we, we want to gather with purpose. This weekly gathering is not our end game, but it is in a way a dress rehearsal for the end game gathering that is to come, right? So what does that mean for us? It means we're going to sing loudly. We're going to worship passionately. We're going to engage wholeheartedly. We're going to be fully present when we come here. We're going to be filled up. We're going to be encouraged. We're going to be, we're going to have our coffee down on the floor when we worship. We're not going to even, we're going to have our hands freed up. We're here to worship and be with God, right? We're going to be fully present, but this is not the end. And we are going to scatter with the same tenacity, with the same fervency, with the same zeal, with the same passion into our communities to bring the message of the gospel to the people who need it most because that is what we've been called to do. So church family, are you with me on that? You guys ready to be, to scatter passionately? Let's, let's, let's make this our aim every week. This is not the end. This is a means to an end. Let's gather with passion, but let's also scatter with even more passion as we bring the gospel to the world around us. Let's pray. Father, I'm just, um, I'm blown away by your sovereignty. And um, to think about the ways that you are constantly at work in the things that seem broken and messed up and, and evil and sinful, God, you are still at work in that. There's nothing that surprises you. There's nothing that catches you off guard. And you are able to take even those things and set it in motion a plan that is so beautifully perfect in the magnification of your glory and your beauty. And God, you don't just do that as a God who is far away, but you invite us in to take part of that mission with you. And what a privilege that is, Lord. What a, what a blessing, what an opportunity that we have in front of us to serve you in that way. And so God, would you give us, first of all, Lord, would you forgive us for the ways that we have seen this gathering of, of Christ church 
gathering together to worship as a place for us to find security only. Would you forgive us of the ways that we have sought our significance from the different things that we do here? And Lord, would you give us a, a, a passion to, to pursue the risk of bringing your gospel into the world around us, to, to scatter with purpose, to scatter with mission, to scatter with tenacity and zeal and fervency? Would you encourage us in that, God? And ultimately, Lord, would you give us a greater picture of what that will look like someday when we gather around your presence, around your throne, to bring you the glory and the honor that you deserve, Lord. We love you. We're so thankful for the ways that you are at work in this place. Would you continue to empower us to do your work on your behalf, Lord? We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.